you've still got a sound mind, you're able to write. And it's not a race. The more you live and the more you learn, the more you've got to offer as a writer. And so my real advice is that if you truly want to be traditionally published and you've been going for five or ten years, just don't give up. It's not over until you give up. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Everyone, welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. Great to be back with you in 2023 with a new release feature author. And that author today is Lisa Island. Lisa has a new release, which is a fabulous women's fiction story, the one and only Dolly Jamison. And I've just finished reading this and it's absolutely such a great read. And I have had a really great chat with Lisa about the book itself, and about the writing of it in this interview. So before we get on to talking about the book and about the writing process that Lisa went through and a whole lot of other things to do with writing and publishing, let me tell you a little bit about Lisa. Lisa Island is an Australian author and writing mentor. With seven published novels under her belt in various genres, she's established herself as a thoughtful, nuanced voice in modern historical fiction and women's fiction. She's a passionate community builder and enjoys supporting organisations that advocate for human rights and the arts, twin passions she explores in the latest novel, the one and only Dolly Jamison. And in fact, my first meeting of Lisa was at the Romance Writers of Australia conference in Fremantle way back in, I think, 2013 or around then. And I've known Lisa ever since and we catch up quite regularly at the conferences. So it was really lovely today to talk to her about this new book and about her writing career. She lives with her husband in a small town in Gippsland in Victoria. And when she's not writing, she spends her time mentoring aspiring authors and emerging authors, drinking coffee and playing minion to her incredibly spoiled dog, Lulu. Lisa is a great one to follow on social media. And of course, she has really great videos on Instagram where she talks about different aspects of writing as part of her mentoring program. So make sure that you catch her for that. So now on to our chat about the one and only Dolly Jamison, which was released on the 10th of January. As this interview goes out, it's already out in the shops and you can find it on audio, ebook, and of course in print at your favourite in-store and online retailers. So let's welcome Lisa Island to the Convo Couch. Lisa Island, welcome to the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Thanks for having me, Pabs. Nice to chat to you again. It is. It's been a while. I think we had, I think you were on one of the years we had COVID and we were doing those sort of quick book, new release type things. It might have been when Shirley Sullivan came out, I think. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. It seems like forever ago. It does now. feel like a while ago. <laughs> but really good to have you on, of course, and to chat about your lovely new book out tomorrow as we're recording on, what day is it today? It's Monday, the 9th of January, I believe. So congratulations on the one and only Dolly Jemison. 
It's lovely. Dolly is the most fabulous character. I can't wait to talk to you about her. So before we get into that, could you take us back in time, if you like, to how you actually got into writing and how your writing career has evolved since then? Sure. I always have wanted to be a writer. I think I listen to rights for women and I think this is a this is quite a common theme amongst writers is that started off always reading was that nerdy bookwormy kid <laughs> at school really and spending a lot of time in the school library but I always wanted to be a reader a writer rather I was a reader and I always wanted to be a writer and I even used to produce little books myself and so I've actually I should I've actually got some still I used to make from the time I was quite small and I used to sell them to my members of my family for five cents and when I got a bit older, my dad had a photocopier in the shed, like he had this like home office in our garden shed, and he had a photo, this really old photocopier in there, which I was not allowed to use, but I used to sneak out there, I used to write stories and then photocopy them and sell them to people at school. <laughs> I was all right. You were very enterprising, Liz. I was into self-publishing before it was a So yeah, I was definitely always wanted to be a writer, but in time where I grew up so it sound like I'm ancient but it does it it was back in the 70s and 80s when I was at school it really wasn't a time where I grew up anyway where you thought about a writer being an actual real job I didn't know it any wasn't writers. a career path was it no it wasn't it was like writers were these magical beings that came from somewhere else and actually, I suppose in a lot of ways they did come from somewhere else because I don't know about you, Pam, but when I was growing up, the stories that we heard were mainly came from other places, mm. from UK, from America. There weren't a lot of Australian voices in fiction and didn't really occur to me that being a writer was something that I could do. So I grew up to do a law degree. I didn't finish the degree because I was terrible at it. But I started a law degree, then discovered that I actually wanted to be a teacher and I taught for many years, loved teaching. And, but when I had kids and I was home on parental leave, I started dabbling. I'd always written in journals. I'd always loved to write and I used to just write and tell the kids stories, write little stories for my kids and tell them those. And then when I was on family leave with my third son, I just started to write and I thought that I would really like to have a go at having a career where I could do it, work from home. And so that was the start of it. But it took me from there. That was around about, he was born in 2003 and I fiddled around on my own for a couple of years and then did a creative writing course, um, encouraged by a friend. And um, because We've had a very similar career path then because I taught for many years and I had my third daughter in 2000 and that's the year I started my master's in creative writing and then got into writing in the early 2000s as well. So funny isn't it and I think it is I was talking to a group of writers about this the other day like actually in person we went we actually got together it was so exciting to talk to somebody in the flesh rather than on zoom but we were talking about that whole idea of writing not being a real job or not what thing people not including us at, at times not believing that it's a real job and not actually honouring the work and understanding that it is actually a lot of work and deserving of remuneration. But yeah, so yeah, so that was what I did. I did a course and it took 10 years though from the time that I first seriously started to write something for publication 
until the time I got published. So I joined. So when was your first book published? 2014. So I got picked up by, got my first contract in 2013 after a conference at the Romance Writers of Australia in Fremantle. Yep. Went that and pitched to escape publishing. So that's the other thing is that my very first book was did not go directly to print. It was a digital first publisher. It did go to print quite quickly, that story, with the main publisher, which was Harlequin, but it started off as a digital first publication. And, yeah, and from there I was off. And so I've brought out this is, I think this is my seventh book. Across a few different genres, haven't you, Lisa? Yeah, I have. I started off in rural romance. That was accidental. I didn't even know that rural romance was a genre. With me. It's with me too. And I lived in the city at the time when I wrote it, but I had lived in the country and my family originally is from the country and I live in the country again now. So I've always got that country girl heart, even though I I love the city and have lived in the city for most of my life. But I wrote a story that was semi-based, a little bit inspired by my time as a country school teacher. It's not about teaching, but it was about a city girl going to the country, which also is a well-worn trope in rural romance. But I didn't know that because I hadn't read any rural romance, didn't even know it was a genre. But I wrote this story and then that got picked up. And of course, when you write something, it actually sold really well, that book. And so once I got picked up for that, the publisher wanted more of the same. So I wrote another two rural romances. And then it wasn't that I didn't want to write rural romance anymore. It was just that I had a story that I was burning to tell and it didn't happen to be a rural romance. Mm. It was a fiction story about four women. And I wrote that and yeah, and then the next story again was another women's fiction and now we've deviated slightly again because I'm now writing dual timeline historical fiction, but it's, but near historical fiction. So fiction set in the 1960s and 70s. I've just written another one of those. So whether I haven't, that one's not submitted yet, but anywhere, but yeah, if that when that eventually comes out, that's another one that's set in the in this time in the nineteen fifties. Okay. So I love that era. Yeah, yeah. No, and I love the. I want to talk to you about that whole dual timeline thing too, because I love the way that that really pushes the story along and really keeps the reader engaged too. I think that works really well for all that. But your last two books, so Dolly and your previous book, The Secret Life of Shirley Sullivan, were introduced to a couple of older characters too. How has that? kind of come about to you, this focus on an older woman character? I think it's really interesting as as you age, so I'm in my 50s now, and as you age, you become, I think I've become more acutely aware of the invisibility of older women, not necessarily people in my age bracket, although there is, there can be that sort of invisibility once you are past your, the dewy glow of youth once you get into your 40s you do become less visible to certain sections of the community but started to be irritated by representations of older women in fiction particularly on screen not so much I think there's some good examples particularly now and on the screen as well but in written fiction there there are becoming more and more great examples of quite strong older female protagonists but when I set out to write Shirley, 
I felt there was a lack of that available for people to read. And I started thinking about people. I I lost my mum. My mum was quite young when she died. And I started thinking about, particularly with when I wrote The Secret Life of Shirley Sullivan, I was thinking about gentle feminism, about quiet feminism, about the people who raised women like me. I consider myself a feminist and I have was raised to think that I could do whatever I wanted to do. And yet my mum was a home homemaker for life and not someone that people probably would have thought as a feminist, but she's the one that imbued me with all the values that I have. And so she has given me the opportunities that she didn't have. And I so I wanted to honour that. And so I just really I love the idea of the freedom of old age too of getting to a point in old in, in your as you age, getting to a point where you think, stuff this, I'm gonna do whatever the heck I want. <laughs> I'm sick of all these constraints and being treated this way. I am I've looked after kids or I've raised a family or I've had a great and I have had all these expectations and now I'm 75 or I'm 80 or however old I am and I'm just gonna do what I want to do. And so I wanted to honor that. Dolly is quite a feisty character. And so there's quite a, a lot of that built into Dolly. Yeah. So I, I just love, and I think also that representation of the, the grandmother stereotype that we see, we see women often in their 60s, 70s and 80s represented as that idea of a woman sitting on a porch in a rocker knitting or doing needlepoint and, uh, and or in the kitchen with an apron on. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with those pursuits. But I was Taking notice when the other day where people are um, lost for the name all of a sudden, the designer that recently died. Oh, uh, Vivian Westwood? Vivian Westwood, yeah. thank you. I could have been. That, that is senior brain at work right there. <laughs> yeah, when Vivian Westwood died and she was the same age that my mother would be if she if my mother was still alive. Right. And I was looking at those photos of her, even recent photos, and she's dressed in really, I know she was a designer, but she's, dressed in these avant-garde clothes and she's got this punk rock attitude and she was in her she was in her late 70s or 80s I can't remember how old she was she must have been 80 because my mum would be 80 82 anyway yeah so I just think that we think about women in this particular way and yet Women in their 60s, 70s and 80s are as diverse as the rest of the population. Um, we're not all grandmothers. And if we are grandmothers, we're not a particular type of grandmother. Yeah. Um, just because we have offspring who have offspring doesn't mean that we're sitting on the porch in a rocking chair. So yeah. I won't present that in fiction. Yeah, no, I love that. I'm a grandmother and I'm definitely not on the porch in the rocking chair. So. <laughs> no, you are not. And I'm not a grandmother. It's funny because, like, I there I know women who are much younger than me that are grandmothers, and they're still going out to rock concerts, and they're yeah. still working, and they're making valuable contributions to their community in all sorts of ways. They're not just sitting around waiting to die, which is the yeah. representation that we're often given in fiction or yeah. have been. And I want to change that. Yeah. Before we get into talking a little bit more about the book, tell us just, I guess, give us the blurb or your elevator pitch, whatever you like. Tell us about what the book's about. Okay, so Dolly is a, is about, it's actually at its heart a story about friendship, which 
really nearly, no matter what genre, my books are always about relationships. Isn't and it, all my, it always <laughs> one thing, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. And all my, so other than the rural romances, all the, all my books are really about friendship mm-hmm. in some way or another. And so Dolly is about an unlikely friendship between a woman, an elderly woman who finds herself homeless and she is, she would not ever tell you that she's homeless. She would not describe it that way. She says she's between permanent abodes. So she's a homeless lady that spends a lot of time in her local library keeping warm and she comes across a woman at the other end of the social spectrum, a woman who's quite well off but has got her own problems. And Jane is the other character. Jane's in middle age and is facing a crisis in her life and meets Dolly just at the right time and they form this unlikely friendship and the friendship is the thing that ultimately heals them both. So, yeah, that's basically what description of it, I think. I love that and that sort of healing connection that they form and the bond they form. It's really beautiful. And from the very beginning, Dolly is this larger-than-life sort of character, I think in her own mind sometimes too, as well as for the reader. (laughs) And when we meet her, it's 2019, she's in the library, it's set in London, and we discover quite quickly that she does spend a lot of time in the library. She wheels around her suitcase, which or what's in it to start with, and we think at first that, oh, who is this sweet little old lady? But I love this right at the beginning. We do actually get a pretty strong sense of her. I just wanted to read the first few lines. So it's Chapter 1, London, 2019. Good morning, Dolly. How are you today? Fucking freezing, if you must know. And that's in italics because it's her, <laughs> what she's thinking. I smile at Stacey, the senior librarian, and keep my thoughts to myself. Profanity isn't tolerated in the library. I've learnt that the hard way. I'm quite well, darling. And you? Her lips return my smile, but her eyes are steely. So we get, first of all, this very vivid impression that Dolly is perhaps not all that she seemed. And the reactions from the other characters to her too. I love the variety of reactions that we get that start we start to build this picture up about Dolly. So I'm really curious about where Dolly came from for you. What was the inspiration for the character and how did that then evolve for you? Look, it's really interesting and I had this conversation with someone on a podcast the other day and I started to cry when I told the story, so I'm pre-warning you that I might cry. Oh, we love I'm trying to talk myself up. I'm, I'm going to have to tell this story quite a lot over the next few weeks. I'm trying to you know, thicken my skin. But in 2019, my family, my, my husband and my youngest son and I went on a trip to Europe and we went. In January, it was very cold. It was a fantastic trip, but it was very cold. And I started to notice as we travelled around the UK, a lot of homeless people, more than I'd ever noticed before. And there's always homeless people that if you look for them, but it's that they seem to be everywhere. And I first started taking notice in a place called Chester, where it was particularly cold. And we were out at night walking around, going to restaurants and and whatnot. And I noticed when we were coming back that people were sitting in doorways under awnings, under the streetlights, and they were reading. And I'd never seen so many homeless people reading. I was just like fascinated by this. And and I was really concerned because I was thinking, I'm freezing and I'm freezing even when I'm indoors. How are these possible? Like it was really cold. 
And then we were in Edinburgh in Scotland and my husband and my son went into a mini mart or a supermarket or something and I was standing out the front waiting for them and there was a homeless woman and she asked me for change and I was travelling, I didn't have any. And I said to her, I'm so sorry, I don't have any money. My husband's in the shop, Um, I'll ask him when he comes out. And I noticed she was reading a Beth O'Leary novel and so I knew I started, and I'd read it, and so I started to talk to her about the book. And we chatted back and forth for a little while. And then David, my husband, came out and I said, do we have some change? And he said, yes, and we gave it to her. And then she thanked me. And I said, oh, it's nothing. And she said, no, not for the money. She said, that's great. Thanks for the money, but thanks for talking to me. This is a bit where I cry. <laughs> no, I've just got goosebumps as you're saying it. Yeah, because she said, no one looks at me, let alone talks to me. She said, I, and she was clearly an articulate, intelligent woman. I don't know what her circumstances were, why she'd ended up being homeless, but she was an edu- clearly, by the way she spoke, she was an educated, intelligent person. And we'd had this lovely conversation and she said, people just won't even make eye contact with me. And she said, it was nice just for five minutes to have a real conversation about something other than how cold it is or whatnot. And it made me really think about all the times that I have done that, where I've walked past and I've averted my eyes because it's hard to look at people who are in that situation. And it also made me think about where people we see in those situations where they've come from mm-hmm. and the assumptions that we make that that we would ourselves will never be in that position and it made me think about but what if I was like how happened so that you know I started thinking about that and then we came home and then when I was at home some quite some time later I was reading an article in the good weekend it was about this in the demographic of women who are beyond, I think, I can't remember if it was 50 or 60 off the top of my head, but it was older women and they're the fastest growing demographic of homeless people in this country. And it's not, so then when I started to research, I realised it's not just here, that's a phenomenon all around the world. In all developed countries, women who are beyond their mid-50s are in this really vulnerable position. And I was interested to see why. And there's lots of reasons for that. Often people, particularly older women who are in their 70s, 60s, 70s and 80s, often may have interrupted their career or stopped working altogether to raise a family and they've not either not been encouraged or not been able to re-enter the workforce. And then if their partner dies or they or leaves them, they're left in this really vulnerable position. And there's all sorts of other reasons why it happens too. For instance, women generally have less superannuation than male counterparts. They are often in in occupations where they may not be paid as well. All sorts of systemic reasons why this happened, but it's a real growing problem. And so Dolly came from the idea of from really from that Good Weekend article, there was a woman in there who had worked in in TV, and she was and she'd had she was an assistant producer. It wasn't as if she was someone who had a very low paying job. She'd been actually quite advanced in her career and had ended up homeless for various reasons. And I was just shocked by that, and I started to think, what's the most unlikely person I could think of to become homeless? And I started to think about movie stars right 
what if the movie star became, but instead of writing a movie star, and I do not know for the life of me why this is the case, Pan, Dolly came to me as a star of musical theatre. And I tell you a secret. (laughs) I don't like musical theatre. I I was wondering whether it was one of your secret passions after reading of it. The thing is, I've got a very close writing friend, Kelly Rimmer, and her her passion is musical theatre. She (laughs) was so excited when I was writing this book and she was certain that I would become a fan of musical theatre while I wrote it. And I do have a much greater appreciation. And I have to say, and I'm sure listeners are going to put their hands over their eyes and shake their heads when they hear this. I did very recently go to Hamilton and because I was convinced now that I was now a music, after doing all this research, I'm now, I'm, I'm going to go to Hamilton and I'm going to love it. I'm just going to say I didn't love it. <laughs> okay, can I share a secret too? I didn't love yeah. it either. And I love musical, I do like musical theatre. <laughs> Honestly, you and me, we're the only two haters out there. Look, I appreciated it. I thought it was amazing what they did. But it's true. Me, I didn't find it that great as a en- piece of entertainment. So um, we had really terrible seats because we went at the last minute. So I, I do think, and they were really uncomfortable. So that probably didn't help. But and I do have a much better appreciation of music theatre since I. Did. But I tried to make her so many other things. Like I would try and write her as a TV star. And she does dabble in TV a little bit throughout the book, but I tried to make her uh, just a singer. Or, but she really wanted to be she, this character. Yeah, she was tricky, but right, wasn't she? <laughs> and she would not let me write her as anything else but a star of, of musicals. So that's what she was. But yeah, so that's my very long-winded tale of where she came from. So it sounds like she's one of those characters that's a bit of a gift for a writer, Lisa. She's, she was a bit of a conglomeration of a few different ideas, but once you pulled all that together, the character formed herself and then was she fairly easy to write on the page? Did she just appear and her life fell onto the page for you? Or? Yes. She, as a character, she's really, I feel like I know her really well mm-hmm. and she was, she, Dolly, the character herself, was easy to write. The book is one of the hardest books I've ever written. And that is because it's funny because The Secret Life of Shirley Sullivan was that book that, and you probably only get one in a lifetime, I think, that book that just fell onto the page. And it's pretty much, as it appears on the shelf, it's pretty much how I wrote it. There's, it's, there's, it's been edited, of course, yeah, and yeah. it's not, it hasn't been pulled apart and put back together in the way that some books are. And some of my other books have definitely been like that. I wrote Dolly, so there was 2019 that we went away. It was the summer, uh, the Australian summer of 2019 when I read that book and I read that story in The Good Weekend. And so I started to write the book at the beginning of 2020 and I live in Victoria. COVID happened and we were in lockdown for a really long time. And for some writers found that really great for their creativity, but I didn't. I am, many writers are introverted, but I'm not. (laughs) I'm very extroverted and I thrive on the company of others. And I found being in lockdown, I was separate for the first really long lockdown. Our middle son was in Melbourne and we couldn't, even though he was only an hour and a half up the road, we couldn't, we didn't see him months. And he's quite young. And so there were a lot of things. And this is, I understood why we needed to be in lockdown, but it didn't. And I, 
completely supported it, but mate, creatively it was tricky. And so I, and I think I was, I wouldn't have said so at the time, but I think I might have been like borderline depressed. Yeah. When I submitted the draft to my publisher, she came back to me and she said to me, look, there's lots to like, and I love the character of Dolly. There's lots to like in this story, but there's also some parts of it that I'm just not feeling. And she said, I think it's quite dark and it's just not. It's really just not quite working in the format that it is now. And what I'd done was I'd told it in two, from two different points of view. It had been, it was told from Dolly's point of view, but also from Jane's point of view. Okay. And Jane's point of view was very, because Jane's going through quite a crisis and she's depressed and which hasn't changed in the current book, but it's just told from Dolly's perspective, not from Jane's perspective. Anyway, so. It was quite, the publisher said to me, look, it, it, I think you could work on this some more. And so I, what I decided to do was to take Jane's point of view out because that's where all the dark, depressing right, yeah. stuff was and tell it all through Dolly's point of view and that worked. But it was a lot of work to pull that point of view out. And it also got, it's also dual timeline, so it's not the present day or in 2019 and the present day at that time, and then and then Dolly's life from the 1940s forward. And so it was quite complex to pull that other point of view out and then yeah, fiddle with the tense as well because I'd well, written one in present tense and one in past tense, and that wasn't the case either in the first oh, draft. Okay. Well, it was a lot of work. But the character never changed. Yeah. So she herself was a joy to write, but the book has been a long, hard slog. But people see it on the shelves tomorrow when we're, from when we're recording this, yeah. So just picking up on a couple of those points, it is all from Dolly's point of view. As you say, we get the previous timeline, which is her life and growing up and how she got to be where she is today. So we jump back to the 1940s. That is told in present tense. Past. past oh, yeah, the past is told in the past tense uh, and the okay. present. Yeah. And the present so is told. That was my question then. Is that was that your reasoning for that to make the present more kind of alive and to feel more with the reader I, on the page? Or I did the same thing in in The Secret Life of Shirley Sullivan. And in Shirley, it was very deliberate because in Shirley, the present timeline is a chase. They're being chased by the authorities and I wanted it to feel breathless mm. and pacey and then I wanted the past to feel nostalgic and slower and more reflective and so that was very, a very deliberate choice. And I hadn't done that in Dolly because present day timeline is not a chase. There is something at stake. There is something that Dolly is looking for and that is quite timely because of her age, but it wasn't a chase. And so I hadn't, I think I'd put them both in part, both of them were in past tense, but it I just, it didn't feel right when I got to the end of that draft. It was not, so Jane's was told in present tense because Jane's storyline was a bit more pressing. And so I told her storyline in present tense. But then when I pulled that out, I was left with two past tense points of view. And I felt as if there wasn't enough differentiation between, because when you put the big thing at the start, the year or the date or whatever, but I know as a reader, I ignore all those things. I never read those dates or I don't absorb. 
And so I wanted it to be really clear to the reader what what part of the novel they were in so they're not confused that, oh, where are we now? Who is this? Yeah, I want, yeah. oh, this is the present and this is the past. So that was, yeah, so it was a deliberate choice, yes. So you get that differentiation, yeah. So with the dual timeline, Lisa, where we do go back into the past, into her childhood, great, right? because I'm a lover of backstory when it's used correctly and it's almost like we have a whole story of backstory here which is but we go into it as a completely separate story almost because Dolly has a different name and of course it's a previous time period and all that did you enjoy writing that part of it and delving into Dolly's backstory and bringing her history to life well I loved it I love that time period it's both those both of the novels that I've done that way I've set in a time that like so Dolly would be a similar age slightly younger but than my mum so they're probably around about my aunt's age mm-hmm. so I've got source material I've got my aunt who's still alive and I like for instance the setting in the beginning of Dolly's childhood in the house that she lives in I base that on the house that my mum and my aunt grew up in oh, right so I, I, in my mind's eye, I can see these places and I can remember Geelong from the 1960s when I was a small girl and I used to be taken in on the bus into the city of Geelong um, by my nana. They, she, they owned this house in Newtown in Geelong and they, it's not that far into the city. You'd get on the bus, you'd be in there in five minutes. And I remember there's a scene where, where Dolly is taken to the cinema and I can remember, obviously it's set in a much earlier time period, but I can remember being a small child and going to the cinema with my grandmother and my mother. And it, Geelong hadn't changed that much from like the, late 40s to the early 60s when I was going there. So I've got that original sort of source material in my head and in photographs, in family photographs, and I just love, I love the 1940s, 50s and 60s. It's a real joy to write in that time period for me. Yeah, yeah. And Lisa, you're someone who writes, do you write all of one like timeline and then divide it up or are you alternating between them as you're going through the writing process? I'm laughing, Pam, because I wish I knew the answer to this question. I love this. I do it differently. With Dolly, I wrote it. I wrote it. So actually, I'll start with Shirley. With Shirley, I wrote it as it is. So I just wrote, I would write one, one chapter in the present day and then one chapter in the past. And then the chapters alternate like that. With Dolly, I did that, but I had Jane's point of view originally as yeah. well. So it was a bit more mixed up. And in the end, it had to all be pulled apart and put back together. But I did write it that way, so I didn't write one storyline. But I've just completed yesterday a new book, which is set partially in the 1950s and partially in the 1990s, and I ended up writing the whole 1990s storyline in one sitting and the whole 1950s storyline in a separate document. And I've just finished marrying that together. That has been a complete pain in the neck. And you might be able to see behind me. I know you posted it there. I know people listening might be able to see this, but behind me, I've got a big, big wardrobe and I've got about 40 or 50 scene cards stuck on there. And that's so that I can move them around. And I, I know Scrivener exists. So I know I could do it in Scrivener, but I'm not a Scrivener girl. I'm, right. I'm, 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 I'm that hands-on thing. You too. It, I think you've 
connect with your brain in a different way when you're doing the hands-on thing, the practical. Yes, absolutely. I never write story with a pen and paper, but but I do write character notes and backstory and scene cards and that sort of stuff. I do love pen and paper for that because mm-hmm. I, I think there's something about that yeah. makes my brain engage in a different way. So, yeah, so all those hundreds of scene cards behind me, that's it took ages to get the story, having written it in two separate sittings, two separate settings, to meld it all back together so it makes sense as one narrative. Because yeah. the thing that you're really wanting in a dual narrative is that you're wanting the stories to mirror each other and to drive the whole story, the whole arc of the whole book forward at the same time so you're not wanting and revealing things too like I realized that I had carved it up in a certain way that things in the present day were revealing things that had happened in the past that hadn't happened in the past story yeah can't say that there because that hasn't happened in the past yet and so it's I think if I write another one I would go back to writing them alternatively rather than but that's just me I know other people do that I'm not much of a plotter and so I tangle myself up in these sorts of dilemmas all the time yeah I'm hearing you me too it's not terrible with timelines oh timelines just do my head in I usually end up getting like a big scrapbook and physically doing a timeline I have tried using the plotter app on which isn't bad yeah, the plotter program, but I just find getting a big bit of butcher's paper or a big scrapbook or something and actually writing the timeline out. And every single book I say to myself, this time I'm getting the timeline right from the beginning. And I never do, never. Either. And this time I downloaded software, it's called Eon, and I've actually recommended it to other people because I got excited when I first got it. And I thought this is going to be the answer to all my problems. It's only the answer to your problems if you put the things in the time. Because when I'm writing, I don't want to be distracted. And so, like, when I get a roll on, I just go and go. And I think to myself, I really should put this in the time. I'll do it later. And then later never comes. Or it's much later. And then I can't remember. So, yeah. I know. And, look, I just find you sound like you're like me. Every book's different. I don't don't have, like, a particular process that... This is how I start it. This is how I go through it. This is how I finish it. Every time it's different, which is very frustrating. The drafting is different for me. I get to a certain point, which is the point I'm at now. Once the first draft is finished, then all the steps from there Mm. are always pretty much the same. But the first draft, how I get that first draft, seven books, seven different, eight, I've just finished the eight. Yeah. So eight books and then a couple of others that will never see the light of day. So probably about ten. And I've never done it exactly the same way twice. Yes. Yeah. So I don't know how to do it. No, I know. I'm hearing you. So just on that, lease with the whole, when you sit down, so you've got your idea for Dolly, you sat down, You do you then tend to write the whole draft through without doing too much revision along the way? Or are you someone that stops and revises a bit as you go? What's your process? I do not revise as I go. I used to, in my very early books in the rural romances, I used to do that. I don't do it because I've, particularly for women's fiction, I think it might be slightly different if you're writing romance because not that it's easier but because all writing is hard no matter what you are writing. But in the romances there's a structure, a superimposed structure that you are going to stick to that you because there has to be a happen. There's generally, if you're writing a standard sort of romance like a rural romance, there's going to be generally two protagonists and there's – 
there will be a certain sort of an arc and you end up with a happy ending. And so within that, there's not too much deviation. You can tell fantastic stories, but there's not going to be a huge amount of deviation. But in women's fiction, you can you can go anywhere. And so in terms of revising as you go, I, don't, I used to, but I've learned not to bother because I could be polishing and revising something and fixing something that ends up on the cutting room floor. Mm-hmm. So an example of that is in the book that I'm writing now, I've I my first draft, my first messy draft that was all over the place, where I still had the timelines in the 1990s and the 1950s, that was came in at 111,000 words, and as it sits now, it's 101,000 words. So 10,000 words have gone, and more. Of a, but there's whole chapters in there that I just went, "This is just waffle. I don't need this," and I just completely took the whole chapter out. If I was going back and revising that so that the sentences were perfect and that the tension was right and the pacing was right in that chapter, and it would be a lot harder to let go of it at the other end to go, it's this beautiful, pretty polished thing. You're like, oh, but it's so good. It's so nice. (laughs) Whereas it's still messy and rubbishing. And so I can go, great, there's 3,000 words I can get rid of. I just find it's more efficient. And I mentor people, as I know you do too. And one of the things that I, that's one of my tips. I'm not pedantic about telling people how they should write in those sorts of ways because everyone has their process. And if for some people, if revising as they go, if that makes them feel confident and good about the work and they're getting results, then by all means, don't mess with your process. I'm not someone that prescribed I do this, so therefore you must do it too. But if people are not sure why, or if they're, or if I find that they're really obsessing, they're not getting very far, and it's because they're obsessing about the fir- getting the first chapter or the first couple of chapters right. I encourage them to give this a go and say, "What if you just kept writing on and that's the revision until later?" And many people find that very freeing when they allow themselves to let go of that idea of perfection in the first that whole thing too isn't it of learning the story as you go you're you're finding things out about your characters and you're finding things out about the story and if you keep stopping and starting then I think for me anyway sounds like the same for you it interrupts that creative process I think yeah absolutely and you you never like right up until the towards the end like when I never really know the beginning properly until I've written the end so I've rewritten the beginning of my this latest several times and since I've finished it because like I wrote it when I did the I rewrote the beginning once I did the once I'd finished the first draft then now then I went through and did the structural draft and I, and more changes happened and I went and now I'm satisfied with the ending I can go oh now I know what the beginning should be yeah exactly yeah so when you had to pull out that whole section of Jane's character, please, was that like traumatic? Because I know there'll be probably be people listening thinking, oh, no, I just couldn't, I couldn't take out like a whole section or a whole threads of the book. How did you feel about that? Or are you just someone that, like, no, that, need, that needs to happen, I'm doing it? Oh, look, I did, there was a moment where I was just about, about the amount of work that I knew that was ahead of me. I was a bit daunted by, my goodness, this is going to be a lot of work. But I'm very pragmatic about my stories, as in I'm a commercial fiction writer. I want to sell books. 
I want to make the publishers happy and I want to make readers happy. I want to tell the stories that I want to tell. Like I don't want to tell stories that are not in my wheelhouse. So I don't I'm not I don't want someone to say to me, you must write a book about A, B, and C. That's not my go. But with even what I like to write about, I'm really open to help and editorial criticism. I love working with an editor. One of the gifts of working in traditional publishing and also can be also with a great editor in self-publishing too. Yeah. You, yeah. you find the right editor. But for me, one of the gifts of working in traditional publishing is having someone, a professional who does this all the time, that's what they do for a living, who's got a great eye and who loves your work, who has chosen you to work with because they love your voice, they love your work, they love your characters and stories, and they know how to make it even better. And I was actually excited when it's, I was daunted by the amount of work. I really was. And I thought, oh, it's going to take forever. But I was encouraged by my publisher's comments about the things that she did about the book. And I could see why I had a long conversation. We had an hour and a half phone conversation about the book and how it could be improved and whatnot. And I could actually see her vision for it. And it, I got excited because then I could see that the book was actually going a lot. I, look, nobody, no person in their right mind wants to hear, this would be great if you could just do another thousand hours without <laughs> Nobody wants it. What we all want to hear is this is the best book I've ever read and it doesn't need editing at all. But I'm pragmatic. I know that's not going to happen. And if I'm going to have edits, I want them to be ones that are going to improve the book. And I really, truly believe that she was right and that the book is 100 times better than that first draft. And the thing I love about having it all from Dolly's point of view is that there's this mystery around Jane because the reader only finds out about what's happening with Jane as Dolly finds out. And Jane is very circumspect about revealing much about her life, certainly until we get to a certain point and she starts to share more things with Dolly. So for me, that really created more tension around the character and it made me want to read on to find out, oh, what's going on with Jane? And Dolly's starting to suspect different things. Is she right? So I I love that part of it. Thank you. And that is a really good point because I do think in that first draft, some of that tension was not there because we did know what was, even though Dolly didn't know, we knew what was driving the behaviour of Jane. And so therefore there was not that pull through of, I wonder what has happened. I wonder why. What is it that's making her this way? So it really, yeah, it really improved. The book. That's the eye of someone, the benefit of the of having a professional look at it and say, look, I really think it would be better off without this. Yeah, yeah. It was hard, but I'm happy that I did it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So just before we, we wrap up, Lisa, and I just, and you are going to be talking, doing the four curly questions for me for the January Patreon members. So thank you for that. But just in terms of, we talked before about some of the issues in the book, the homelessness, and also very much the situation of women comes through in different ways. The way that women can be forced into a situation or have to deal with situations in life that can be very traumatic, that are not of their own making. And of course, these things happen to men too, but particularly in in the characters and their lives as they unfold, we see the way that these things operate for both Jane and particularly for Dolly. And I think there's so much in there in terms of the themes of the story, the stories that we tell ourselves in order to keep going and the stories that we tell other people 
so that we can keep going. There's the homelessness. There's the sort of issue of grief and loss and dealing with that. And how do you move on from that and survive? As you mentioned earlier, there are these darker aspects of the story, but you have this very light touch with them. And I think partly to do with Dolly's character and her persona, but how did you go about balancing those dark and light things? Even after you'd pulled Jane's voice out, was that something you had to then play around with? Think. Dolly herself, the character, is a really optimistic person. And she's, and I don't actually think I am, to be honest. I think I, I think she's almost the opposite of me. I'm a very, I'm an anxious person and I worry a lot about things. And so it was a joy to write someone who just every problem she came up against would treat it as a challenge to be a pro- it was just a problem to be solved it wasn't it was just a little challenge in the day a, a speed the ear in on the road to where she was going and even when things were really dark and desperate for her she never gives up and i think part of that was i was writing that for myself like, to, to tell myself look life is good life is good don't like kind of like they were writing during covid too right yeah yes exactly it was so ultimately i and i hope other people see this in it it's ultimately a story of great hope and resilience and basically saying that yes life can be tough and it can serve up some really terrible situations but there's always hope well we still live and breathe. There's always hope and things can always turn around. And yeah, I think one of the things that I don't know about you, but I really dislike myself in fiction is being lectured or being, you know, when an author is really passionate about something and they're really banging their point home to you. I do feel now very passionate about homelessness and I've always been passionate about women's issues. And I, but I feel as if that message will be better received by people if it's told in a gentle and humorous way rather than beating people over the head with my views. And so I hope I've achieved that because I, I don't achieve it necessarily in first draft. You know, I, and I was thinking about because I've written another book that's about women's issues and I'm, those 10,000 words that got taken out, a lot of those is me banging on about issues. And I thought, yeah, the reader doesn't really need you that. You can do that in the first draft or anything in the first draft. Actually, I can't remember where I heard this, but I wrote it down. I made a note for myself the other day and I thought, and again, a lot of this stuff we know, but it's just sometimes when you hear it in a different way, it was somebody talking about writing and they said, with this whole idea of exploring an issue or making a point, write the point that you want to make at the top of the scene and then never, ever say it in the scene. Yeah, yeah. So that's that telling at the top that you're not going to do, but then you're showing it through the interactions of the characters. Yeah. I 100% agree with that. And I think that the stories that have meant the most to me, that have given me those messages, have never been soapboxy. They've never been lechery or laboured the point too much. They've just been... Those themes have been gently woven through. Mm. The- I hope I've achieved that. I'm not 100% sure that I do. You know, it's, it, because you never know. It's in every reader will experience Dolly's story differently. And so I hope it resonates with a lot of people. We'll just have to wait and see. It certainly resonated with me, Lise. I loved it. And before we just wrap up this section, you are a writing mentor, as you mentioned. You do mentor emerging writers and writers at different stages of the career. Now, this might be a little bit t- too hard. <laughs> not part of the four curly questions. It's just one for the general podcast audience. But if you had to give one piece of advice to writers, 
what would that be? Don't give up. And that sounds, it's such a tweet mm. to say, but it's that, there's actually some thought behind that because I see a lot, I see the people who come to me are generally wanting to be published by a traditional publisher. They're wanting to be published in commercial fiction. And but sometimes they'll say to me, I've been going for so long and I haven't had any success. And I'll say, how long have you been writing for? And seriously, for towards publication. And they'll say, oh, two years or a year or whatever. And and I'm like, that's nothing. Being in terms, it's not nothing in terms of your life. Of course, that's a lot of effort. But in we're playing a really long game. You can write your whole life. It's not like something that is not like a physical pursuit. We were marathon runners. At some point, your body might break down. But for most of us, even if we, my hands are old and arthritic now, but I, there's, there's, there's dictation software. There's all sorts. What I'm saying is that while ever you, you've still got a sound mind, you're able to write and it's not a race. The more you live and the more you learn, the more you've got to offer as a writer. And so I, my real advice is that if you truly want to be traditionally published and you've been going for five or 10 years, just don't give up. It's over until you give up. Yeah. So you don't, and if you've been going that long, then you really do want to be a writer and writer, writing is part of who you are. And so it's something that you should pursue anyway. There's so many, uh, there's so many other things I could say, but that would be the key thing. Don't give up because success could be just around the corner. Yeah. Yeah. You never know what's around the corner. And I think determination and resilience is very much key factors in it, aren't they? You're going to need it. You're going to need that, that it doesn't end when you get your first, as you and I both know, it doesn't end when you get your first contract. There's a lot, it's a big roller coaster, this writing industry. And so you're going to need all that resilience to keep going throughout your career. There are lots of ups and there are lots of downs, but if you want to do it, then you just have to hang in there. Yeah. Yeah. Great advice, Lise. We are going on to chat about the four curly questions, but for general listeners who are on the Rights for Women podcast, where can they find you online? Oh, I am everywhere. Not on TikTok. I'm not on TikTok, but I am on Instagram as Lisa Island Books. My website is lisaislandbooks.com. I am on Facebook as Lisa Island and, and my, you can probably, that's probably Lisa Island Books too. I'm not really sure, but I'm there. You'll find yeah. me. So yeah, but not on TikTok. I'm not good on, I'm not good with the videos. Uh, no, no. Videos okay, but not the, I'm yeah, not. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm the same. I'm lurking there at the moment, but of course, Dolly is out tomorrow, so she's out as of the 10th of January Yep, and available in all good bookstores and retailers and online in audio as well, an e-book. And you are doing some publicity, some tours in February, Lise. Yeah, I've got, if people go to my website, that's usually updated under the events tab, but yeah, so in my local area of Gippsland and East Gippsland, so I've got some in Sale, some in Bensdale. And then I've got a few, a couple in Melbourne. I'm coming up to New South Wales to go to the, to Orange and Dubbo, Cowra, a few places around there. So I'm Geelong. I'm doing, yeah. So I'm all over the place. So just people can go to the website yeah, and on the website and have a look. Thanks so much, Lisa, and good luck with Dobby. Thanks so much for having me, Pam. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. 
I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women. Find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>